Hello, and welcome to the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast, where we learn about the ocean, share sea stories, and explore ocean careers. I'm your host, Kara Musia. Let's dive into today's episode. Hey, do you want to help the oceans? Have you considered a career in marine biology, but maybe just aren't sure where to start? Head on over to my website, marinebio.life, and subscribe to my newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll receive a free PDF download where you'll learn the seven steps to becoming a marine biologist without the degree. Hello, mermaids, pirates, ocean lovers, and land lovers. Welcome to today's show. Before we get into today's episode, I want to give a huge shout out and thank you to my friend Mitch for becoming the latest patron over at patreon.com. If you, like Mitch, are interested in becoming a patron and helping to keep the Oceantastic episodes coming, head on over to patreon.com slash marinebiolife. For less than a dive tank refill or a cup of coffee, you too can help keep the podcast going. That's patreon.com slash marinebiolife, patreon.com slash marinebiolife. Question, what do you call a book on DIY underwater gardening? A self-kelp book. What do seals do when they need medical attention? They seek kelp. Brent Smith is a commercial fisherman turned ocean farmer, author of the book Eat Like a Fish, and the founder of Green Wave, a network of regenerative ocean farms found worldwide. Join us in today's episode as we discuss how Bren decided to make the leap from commercial fishing in some of the world's most hostile fisheries to aquaculture and, ultimately, regenerative ocean farming. We discuss how ocean farming is the farm of the future and how kelp is the new kale and how you today can help make an impact on our oceans. Please enjoy. Brian, welcome to the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast. Thanks. Honor to be on. This is fun. So I want to start with you a little bit. We're going to take a step back in time. You were a commercial fisherman, which is really fascinating to me. And you fished in the Bering Sea, and which is one of the most uh, notorious seas in the world. Could you explain a little bit the appeal behind it and why you fished there for as long as you did? Yeah. I mean, I grew up in Newfoundland, Canada, which was, um, uh, you know, fishing was was absolutely everywhere in everybody's blood. I Right next to a fisherman's co-op, you know, kids were selling cod tongues door to door. Just what you think of as the sort of idyllic artisanal fishery back in the 70s and, and early 80s. And, you know, I wanted to be a fisherman. And it's interesting. I look back and I wonder why. And it's, you know, they go, they wake up. They head off in the horizon. They own their own boats, no boss, self, self-directed life. And then just this pride of feeding your, your country and your community. And, you know, that was just uh, really appealing. So I dropped out of high school when I was 14 and headed out to sea. And I fished in Gloucester and Lynn, uh, did lobster, tuna, and then headed to the Bering Sea because that's sort of the, the walkabout of any any young fisherman. You know, you head to Alaska and I worked in the canneries first and then was out in the high seas. And um, I absolutely loved it. I mean, you know, this is the thing. It was a really unsustainable warm to, uh, way to fish. We were <laughs> pillaging the oceans, but, you know, what a job. I still miss it. You know, it's like the high seas, the thrill, the humility, just being in this day, right in the middle of the ocean and just, yeah, I miss it a ton. I could, I can imagine because you went out for how long at a time, days, weeks, and you're just kind of in the middle of the ocean at the mercy of her whims. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, we'd, we'd be out, we'd actually offload in the middle of the Bering Sea, like boats would come. And so we were out there for long, long periods of time. Amazing. So you realize at some point, though, that commercial fishing, as much fun as it is and as much as you loved it, wasn't your end-all, be-all and decided to go back to school. And I really love that you have a quote in your book, which I love, by the way, that you suffered under the iron heel of math and science when you studied oceanography, which kind of seems like the next logical step, like commercial fishing. I'll just study the ocean a little bit more. So could you explain kind of how your evolution through college went? I mean, my dad was a real 
smart guy. I don't know what happened to me. And he was a, he was actually a, a linguist and a mathematical linguist. So there was just all this a lot of numbers when I was when I was a kid. But you know, I I had probably piles of uh, learning disabilities back when I was in school. There were no tests. There were nothing. No, no, no anything. So there was just a, that's why I dropped out of high school. There was just a sort of deep frustration and and incredible boredom, quite honestly. But then I went. To the after the boats decided to head to college and give it a try and yeah I wanted to be like the Jacques Cousteau right and it was just not gonna happen <laughs> like, <laughs> like not, not even close like I couldn't follow the concepts I couldn't remember anything you know it's just like I didn't have these you know there are these basic skills I think you learn in high school that I just didn't didn't have and in fact I showed up in college and I was like a wild animal right I was straight I was like two days off the off the boats I had flown in from Dutch and long hair beard just like just a mess I I couldn't see out of one of my eyes because I had chemicals uh, splash and so it's just an animal and I got in the dorm and I was like, this is unbelievable. I'm not going to live in a dorm. This is ridiculous. Like they were, you know, it was packed in there. There was, it was like a frat dorm or something. And so I moved out, I think my third day out to a golf course, the woods in a golf course and built a lean to. And that's where I spent my first semester. So, like, <laughs> <laughs> so college was definitely an adjustment for me. <laughs> you made it, you made it your own experience. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So at some point, you kind of realized that there's some issues with commercial fishing that you started to open your eyes to. What were some of the things that really struck home for you and started to make you want to pivot away from the commercial fishing and into something a little bit more sustainable? Yeah, I mean, you know, humans get too good at what they do, right? Too efficient. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it's a fascinating history because the industrial fishing really came about uh, after World War II, when mm-hmm. a lot of the the technology that was developed for World War II, the the sonar things like that, and the large boats were repurposed for um, uh, to chase fish, and mm-hmm. even you know some World War II pilots uh, they were they were put on spotter planes to go find the fish, and so that was a big big change in the ocean. And by the time I hit there, it was just pillage all around it was just pulling up entire ecosystems with our trawls you know we're in big huge boats we're fishing around the the clock and you know when you pull up fish you only got a permits for a couple and so everything else uh, you just throw overboard and from the pressure a lot of them die you know they're, as they're getting pulled out so it was just seas of death i was young and i wanted to spend my life in the ocean think of 50 years out like my captains were thinking like 10 years out you know, they were just going to fish the last fish. Uh, so a whole generation of us sort of began thinking that we needed something uh, new because we just knew this wouldn't last. And like I had this inkling, these suspicions, but then back home in Newfoundland, the cod stocks crashed, 30,000 people thrown out of work overnight. And it was stunning to watch an entire sort of culture and economy just disappear because the ecosystem was not taken care of. And just to see these hungry ghosts, the fishermen just walking the streets, nothing to do. And um, that was sort of the big turning point for me, just realizing there aren't going to be any jobs on a dead ocean. And I think we're facing that again in the era of climate change. So in a way, my career has, has tracked the sort of challenges and ecological collapses that we've seen on the ocean. Yeah, absolutely. The collapse of the cod industry was one that definitely rattled, I mean, I think more than just the fishery itself, it kind of rattled the world that the oceans aren't uh, completely bottomless, right? There is a limit and we've, we hit it. So for you, you were looking for more sustainable options and you had turned to aquaculture, which on paper really does seem sustainable, right? Like we'll just farm what we can't catch and that seems really great. Uh, could you explain what working on the salmon farm was like for you and why it was a very eye-opening experience in that respect too? Yeah. So, you know, it, it really did make sense. We were going to feed the planet by growing fish and, you know, these were going to be the new sort of sustainable jobs uh, for fishermen. But then when I hit the salmon farms, it was just basically all the mistakes made on land in industrial agriculture were uh, shifted and made in the early days of aquaculture. So use of pesticides, antibiotics, terrible, like using huge percentage of wild fish to grow 
farm fish. In fact, there was it was like five to one or eight to one at that point of the amount of per pound of a wild fish it took to grow one pound of farm fish. So mm-hmm. here we were continually depleting the wild fish stocks just to grow some some salmon. And and the tr- the I think the if I look back, the real trouble with aquaculture from its start was it grew around markets. It grew around what people wanted to eat. So like salmon and tunas and things like that. But that's a wild palate. You know, that Mm -hmm. was developed based on the fish that swam in the sea. And no one asked this fundamental question. Like no one asked the ocean, what does it make sense to grow? What's unique about Mm -hmm. the ocean as an agricultural space? And so that was the journey I went on after I left the the farms. And every time I've hit land, I've gotten lost. Like every time I've been pushed off the sea. And I think that's my story, you know, struggling to stay in the ocean and then, and then getting pushed off. And, uh, but just wanting to die on my boat one day, like that was the, that remains the goal. So I just went on this search of, you know, what does it make sense to grow in the ocean? Right. Absolutely. And I mean, some of the aqua, I mean, aquaculture is an old tradition, right? I've read in your book, I had no idea how old it was. It dates back to like 475 BC China. I was like, that's, that's impressive. I thought it was more of a newer invention to combat what we're facing with overfishing. And it goes back (laughs) even further, like, you know, thousands of years ago, Pacific Northwest uh, indigenous communities were building clam walls, right? To cultivate Mm -hmm. clams. This is a, a history that's just and I'm forever and sort of, I'm just a moment in that. I didn't invent anything, right? I mean, I'm just like a, a piece of this long journey. And I'd say fish aquaculture is, it's tried to really get better. I have good friends that do it. They're just trying to continually be more sustainable. From my perspective, we need to get beyond sustainable. Like sustainable is about making a bad thing better. So your mm-hmm. clothes have a high a footprint, you know, environmental footprint. So you try to lower that. But the opportunity and the really important thing we need to do amongst the climate crisis is be restorative, regenerate. Mm -hmm. And how do we use our food system, our farming system to actually breathe life back into the ocean, not just lower impact? Absolutely. That makes total sense. And there were some issues with aquaculture that you had highlighted that I wasn't aware of. I had understood about, you know, that added, like, you have to use wild caught fish to feed the farm fish and using antibiotics. And then obviously fish have excrement and that has to go somewhere. So that contributes to other issues. But one of the things I thought was interesting was these fish escape and then they compete with the native stocks um, and they actually become invasive species. So I thought that was really interesting in that Alaska and Washington state had banned salmon farming, for example, um, because of this. Yeah, yeah. There's um the fish, you know, continually there 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 are fish escapes. There was just one in Newfoundland. They're like they're just all you know down in Chile and Norway. They're all over the place. And the reason is is it's really hard to fight the ocean. The ocean is this right. like really brutal place. And so you have these huge pens out there, and the ocean just in a storm tears them apart. And mm-hmm. so the fish escape. And you have these sort of mutants and they're very aggressive mm-hmm. mutants and in, in, in the battle with wild fish, they win. And that's really, uh, it's really unfortunate. Yeah, absolutely. And it kind of stems to another issue once we're out of the ocean with seafood mislabeling, uh, which is something that I've also been aware of. And I guess I kind of always attributed it to wild caught fisheries, but it's a, it's a thing in aquaculture as well is the fish that you're eating isn't always what it says it is, uh, which is a really interesting <laughs> phenomenon that happens. Yeah, I mean, I forget there was a there was a report that came out about New York uh, sushi restaurants and something like I, I forget the exact number, but like a quarter or a third of all fish tested they did genetic testing um, were not what they s- said they were. You know, they were mm-hmm. mislabeled, and that's stunning, right? That's like massive, massive fraud. And in the aquaculture industry, the, I think the reason is. Yeah, aqua, you know, it was terrible tasting fish when we first did it. It was all discolored and it was just awful. But it's easy and cheaper to 
to grow. And so there was a huge um, uh, push to mislabel farm fish as, as wild fish. And so aquaculture had the worst brand name in the grocery store. And so what, what they did was really start mis, mislabeling. And it's just, um, it's a real, tra- a real tragedy. And it's one of the reasons you really want to make sure and ask where your seafood's from and try to buy as close to your your uh, community as possible. I go down to the day boats here and and buy my fish and you know exactly where it's where it's coming from. Absolutely. You have a quote in your book from a chef and author Mark Bittman and says that buying the right kind of seafood seems to require an advanced degree in endangered species. Fish shopping in short is not for sissies and is fraught for anyone with an environmental conscience. Yeah. And that resonates. Yeah. It's really true. <laughs> well, I mean that's the th- right now there are all these apps you can get, right? Mm-hmm. On like what fish is blue, green, okay to eat, and it's all always switching around, and it's just so complicated. And what happens is, I think the consumers just give up and go buy chicken. You know, <laughs> that's what they do, and that's not a solution. Either. I mean, like even farmed fish have a lower carbon footprint than chicken, right? Mm. So that's not that's not what we. Uh, need to do. And everybody asks me like, oh, what fish should I eat? And I'm like, I don't know. I don't think there is a fish. If you're going to eat fish, it should be like beef. It should be this delicious um, something you eat like twice a month, right? Mm -hmm. And just cherish it and love it as one of the last uh, wild foods. But as far as it being sort of daily center of the plate, I just don't think it makes sense in the era of climate change. Yeah, absolutely. So you did go on a search to find a more sustainable option and not just sustainable, but regenerative option. And that's kind of how you came into shellfish. I mean, that's what you could tell people. You, What kind of fish I eat is shellfish, right? Farm shellfish. Yep. Could you share the story of how Thimble Island Oyster Company got started? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I bounced around and headed in, ended up in Long Island Sound, which was, uh, you know, in Connecticut here, which was a pretty tough place for a Newfoundland. <laughs> Newfoundlander to end up and uh, really struggled here uh, for quite a while, but then found the ocean. And it was a very different ocean economy. Shellfish uh, had gone back generations. And right near me was the was uh, Stony Creek, Thimble Islands, and used to be this one of the centers of oystering in the entire country. So I remade myself as an oysterman and started very slow. And I was terrible at it. I killed millions of oysters because I was a fisherman. I chase, hunt, and kill things as opposed to carefully cultivating and caring for like these little baby seed and then over 18 months and making sure they're they're okay. So I just ran a death camp forever. But over time... <laughs> I learned to do it. I developed this blue thumb. Although I miss commercial fishing, uh, I've just, I've really developed a pride in growing things and farming things. Makes sense. You have a lot of stories and kind of how, in your book about how Thimble Island got started and some of your trials and errors and two of the major events that happened that seem really formative in the rest of your ocean farming and how you've evolved are hurricanes, Sandy and Irene. And could you explain a little bit how they were kind of a wake-up call for you and how you shifted your models after that? Yeah. So, you know, I ran my oyster farm for, I don't know, seven years. And was it was it was the emergent moment of sort of the Brooklyn food scene. So I was doing very well, uh, really building my business. I had the first community-supported fishery, you know, a CSF for shellfish. Things were going great. And then Hurricane... I think it was Sandy that hit first. I forget. I forget if it was Irene or Sandy. Came in and destroyed 90% of my crop. The storm surge came in, buried all my oysters. So I picked myself up. I was like, okay, rough year. Let me start again. Next year, it happened again. Second hurricane. And I was like, oh my God, this is the new normal. There's no way um, I can run a, a farm, a, a small business, if there are hurricanes coming in all the time. But again, I didn't want to leave, leave the water. I was just refused to go anywhere. So I started to adapt and change my farm and just figure out what would a climate resilient farm look like. And one of the things that I learned was you really have to think about the architecture underwater. And that's kind of what we're doing. Like, what kind of structure do you build? that can weather this kind of uh, weather. And what I learned was you want to go very, very simple and cheap. 
And you want to be a willow, not an oak. So when the storms come in, you don't want to like stand there and just try to take it and make sure everything holds. What you want to do is just let that farm go with the weather, sink under the water, and then pop back up. And think of the farm is really just think of it as underwater scaffolding made out of ropes and buoys. So those storm surges come in, the buoys just sink underwater, the ropes bend, and then everything pops back up. So that design principle of simplicity and um, not fighting the power of the seas has just become really important. Absolutely. That makes sense. And I want to take a, a step back. We talked a bit about finfish aquaculture and kind of the problems with that, but And we said that shellfish is really a great way to be restorative, but we didn't really explain why. So, I mean, oysters, I know, can filter 50 gallons of water a day, which is insanely impressive. I think clams and mussels have a similar filtration system, and it helps with a lot of the extra nutrients that are in the water. So it's kind of one of the reasons why this restorative farming is so applicable. Now, how did you, you added another layer, though. You have 3D ocean farms. It's not just shellfish. Well, how did you get into kelp? (laughs) Yeah, it was, believe me, I never, ever planned in my life uh, to grow vegetables underwater, right? In fact, you know, when I started, I was getting laughed off the docks, right? It was just uh, (laughs) uh, by everybody else. But I mean, you know, the farm, think of it as a, a vertical underwater garden where you have these anchor at the anchors at the edges and then ropes or lines up to the surface with buoys and then another set of lines just below the surface connecting those two anchor systems and then from there we grow our kelp vertically downwards Um, we've got scallops and lantern nets mussels and mussel socks all hanging from this structure and then oysters in in cages and the clams like the mud a lot this just the sea basket approach just allows you to grow a species year round now one of the one of the seasons where I didn't have a crop was winter. And I just started searching around and I found here in Connecticut, it was bizarre, one of the world's experts in uh, seaweed farming it was Dr. Charlie Yerish. So him and I teamed up and, and uh, incorporated seaweeds in into the farm. And over time, it's just really makes sense because it's easier to grow plants than animals. Kelp grows incredibly fast. It's a winter crop. And I can use that same gear. So yeah, I've, I've, you know, seaweeds become just a center of the farm. And it is pretty amazing to just at the springtime, just pull up this wall of 20 foot, beautiful brown kelp. Like it's a, you know, that's just like thousands and thousands of pounds of it on the line. Could you explain how you harvest kelp? You, you had a little bit in your book about how you have three barrels and like different parts of the kelp go to different industries based on how basically how pretty it is. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, first, you just you'd be curious how we seed the kelp. We, um, we yeah. do is we go out and collect a couple blades of kelp that are reproductive. You can tell kelp is reproductive when there's this chocolate stripe on it. So we take that back and we've got a hatchery here and we basically release those, that little seed, the sporophytes and stuff into tanks. And in the tanks, we have these just PVC pipes with little string around it, just thin, like looks like household string wrapped all around it. And that the seed sticks to the string. We grow it out a little bit to about one, two millimeters. And then we bring that out on the farm and unspool, uh, ra- unravel the, that string around the, the lines, the ropes out there. And then the seed transfers to the rope and then just grows. And it's amazingly easy because all it's doing, I don't have to feed, I don't have to fertilize, I don't have to water uh, the kelp. It just, it's, you know, soaking up sunlight and the nutrients in the water. My job as an ocean farmer is just to find those nutrient sweet spots, like make sure the kelp as it gets bigger and heavier is still sitting in the in the perfect place in the water column. Now, the way we harvest and harvest hits, um, we start harvesting early spring and it runs for a couple of months and we start early with baby leaf kelp and this sort of the real short blades because we want to thin the lines. So we go and we, we pick the delicate like every you know, third blade we'll pick. And um, that's delicious. The chefs uh, like it. It's like really translucent. It's really got a really delicate mouthfeel. What's left on the line allows the kelp to grow bigger and thicker. It just has more room to do it. So when it grows out, what we do is we haul those lines out of the, out of the water. 
and hang them over the boat. And we got three barrels because we sort of have this this whole leaf approach. Like, how do we use every piece of the plant to do it uh, for some market? So we cut off the stipes. That's the stems. And uh, those are turned into uh, pickles. They're just delicious. Uh, it's like a bread and p- uh, butter pickle at our, we got a bunch of local processors that do that. Two thirds of the blade then goes, we cut off and that's going now either to noodles, it's going to plant-based burgers, soups, all sorts of um, like bu- kelp bouillon cubes. And that's just the really high quality, uh, tasty kelp. And then the last third we uh, is usually degraded and biofouled so because that, that's the oldest part of the plant. And that we use for fertilizer. We got that off. And, be, and what's interesting, kelp has been used for generations as fertilizer. In fact, in, Sandy, in San Diego, in the early 1900s, there were 1,500 workers uh, producing fertilizer and feed for 700 mid- Midwestern farms. Like this is just something we have always done because the kelp is packed full of micronutrients and nitrogen, all things that farmers uh, need. And that way we've, we have a use for every piece of the crop. This year, part of that, the degraded, also went for bioplastics. Uh, so seaweed straws and packaging. It's amazing, right? You know, I don't know how much folks know, but plastics is a huge issue in the ocean. Right? It's leaching in and you have all these fish uh, with microplastics in them. But So here as a farmer, I can be- begin growing seaweeds that's actually used for packaging to replace uh, fossil fuel plastic packaging. So that's really, really exciting for us. That's really interesting. I didn't realize that. Now, and that kind of brings it full circle, right? A lot of a lot of what we find in the ocean comes from 80% of uh, ocean plastics are actually from land-based sources. So if it comes from the ocean and we use it and it goes back, it kind of seems like a it's, a, it's a fine thing. It's full circle. Yeah. That's really interesting. And now kelp is amazing in and of itself. We talked a little bit about the benefits of shellfish, but kelps are referred to as the sequoias of the sea and can sequester a lot of carbon and also a lot of nutrients, which is why it makes them such beneficial fertilizers, which I thought was really fascinating. And I like that you have a campaign, kelp is the new kale. (laughs) And it took, uh, but it took you a little while for it to kind of catch on and to be more more of a normal on people's plates you could you explain a little bit of the process of kind of having people out to the farm and getting people on board with eating sea vegetables yeah i mean listen seaweeds it's got the worst name it's got weed in it and you know it's like i besides sushi i wouldn't eat it like it's just kind of (laughs) disgusting in my head um But, you know, I, I, I fell in love with a foodie and we just went on this a journey with all these incredible chefs. I mean, the, the amazing thing uh, is we're the, one of the great culinary moments in history, right? And that's, what, that's really what we need. And the job of the chef is to make things that we can grow, no matter how disgusting they are, delicious and beautiful. And if you can't do that as a chef, like quit your job. Like your job is to make a delicious climate cuisine that's going to breathe life back in, uh, into our ecosystems, into our planet. We worked with all sorts of chefs, Rene Renzeppi, David Chang, um, had them out on the boat, did tours. And what was interesting was they tasted the kelp. And my kelp, I grow at the southernmost region of this sugar kelp. So it it has a different flavor and taste. It's sort of milder. It's a thinner uh, thinner blade than, say, up in uh, Alaska or Maine. And so the chefs are like, wow, I've never tasted kelp that, that was like this. And that's there we're getting into the meroirs, right? Just like with wine, we get different flavors from different regions. Each harbor each place on the coast has a different flavor because it's a different mix of fresh water salinity nutrients how high in the water column you're growing so we took that meroir and started developing different foods around it so uh, and you know one of the first things we did was kelp noodles and we had Brooks Headley uh, in New York who was a was a pastry chef and then he took it on upon himself to do go all vegan in his restaurant, but his idea was to make get people to eat vegetables by making them unhealthy. 
right? That was like, <laughs> that was, which is brilliant, right? And so we made right. some unhealthy dishes, right? We took kelp noodles, which is just kelp blanched and then thrown through a noodle, noodle machine. And he made barbecue kelp with parsnips and breadcrumbs. And that's brilliant. You get the heat of the barbecue sauce, that roundness of the parsnips, the crunch of the breadcrumbs. And no one even knew that, it, you know, they didn't even think twice about it being... Uh, seaweed. And that's what we want to do. We want to sort of de-seaweed, de-sushify this local cuisine that we're able to grow. And kelp is a good sort of um, on-ramp to the 10,000 different uh, seaweeds that are in the ocean. There are thousands of things we can eat. Kelp is extremely mild tasting and turns Mm -hmm. this bright green when you blanch it. So the aesthetics is really strong. But like imagine being a chef. And finding out there were like arugulas, corns, tomatoes, lettuces that you'd never seen or cooked with before. And that's what we're looking at the ocean. Like this can be a journey of deliciousness as we as we discover um, new things to eat in the ocean. And it's still, even though you're trying to make them unhealthy, they are quite healthful, really. Uh, they have more vitamin C than orange juice, calcium, more calcium than milk, more protein than soybeans. And they're loaded with omega-3s, which is where... We say, you know, eat your fish so you get your omega-3s, but really that's where the fish get it. So that's, it's a really great point. I like that you have, you're converting, you know, longtime foodies and writers from, ew, I won't eat that to they mix it with root vegetables and they're like, this is actually really tasty and delicious. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) And it appeals to not just foodies, but you actually went, took your kelp noodle dish out to a festival and tried it out on everyday folk and they loved it as well right yeah i mean drunk plumbers loved it (laughs) (laughs) and that seemed like the real test i went to like this beer test and tried it and uh, folks were coming back multiple times so i was like ah okay we're on to something now (laughs) that's awesome so you have your 3d farm you're creating uh restorative regenerative ocean farming and you felt a call to do even more. So could you explain the story of how GreenWave started to catch on? Yeah, so you know, GreenWave, we decided to create um, a nonprofit whose job is to train the next generation of regenerative ocean farmers. And um, what we want to do is train 10,000 new ocean farmers in the next 10 years. We have a waiting list of 6,000 people for our programming just in the U.S. Request to start farms in over 100 countries around the world. Like there is a lot of momentum out there, which is really exciting. What our programming looks like, we got two sets of programming. One is farmer training and the other is innovation. The farmer training, it's got two pieces. One is a high-touch program and the high-touch has a social justice focus. It's it's targeted indigenous communities and fishermen who are directly affected by climate change. In fact, we just started the, f- the first indigenous-owned seaweed hatchery in the country. And that's so important because, you know, communities need to own their own seed. That's this, we can't have a Monsanto. Monsanto situation of privatization of seed. And that's what that looks like is we help with permitting, we provide seed, we help people set up farms. It's very high touch. The low touch uh, program is, and we're just rolling this now on out now, is an online platform. And what that looks like is you can go on and you can actually start building a farm, right? You can say how many acres you want to lease, what's your bottom like, is it mud, is it sand? And it'll build a farm for you, a farm design, and uh, create a budget, let you know how much that's going to cost, and and it it generates some permitting language. And then uh, the toolkit also walks you through the entire season of what are the key things you know. The second big piece of programming is innovation. And that is, one is market development, and that's where we're working up and down the supply chain in order to sort of find these choke points and help fix them. So an example is actually COVID coming into harvest season, and we couldn't process in the processing hubs. So what we did was we found old uh, shutdown tobacco farms here in New England mm-hmm. and took the kelp and dried it in the tobacco farms. So we were able to hold it and store it and sell it. You know, so maybe kelp isn't the new uh, kale. Maybe it's the new tobacco because it kind of looks like it, right? It was just hung it. <laughs> the workers at these old tobacco farms knew exactly what to uh, what to do with it. And then the other part of the innovation program is is the data piece so and sensors. So the challenge with ocean farming is that our 
essentially our soil turns over a thousand times a day. Like we have no control of, of the nutrients and mm -hmm. we can't see what we grow because it's underwater. So ROV technology, sensor technology is absolutely essential in order for us to be good farmers. So we're developing a platform that talks to sensors. So we're able to be precision farmers and really um, find those nutrient sweet spots in the water, know exactly when we can plant, things like that. And that's just going to be key and exciting. The other, the other part of that, those sensors and things allow us to track the amount of carbon we're soaking up, the amount of nitrogen, uh, those ecosystem services we provide so farmers can get paid for it. And that data has value. All that information is being pulled together. And so uh, we had a program last year where farmers were getting paid to collect data on their farms for scientists. And I think that's really exciting where the farm of the future looks like growing food, growing agricultural products and bioplastics, uh, harvesting data uh, and harvesting ecosystem services. And when you get those quadrants, I think that's how you get climate resiliency because there are all these different income streams that allows you to really be uh, flexible because you know the weather's gonna get crazy out there. So we really need to reimagine what farms look like. Absolutely. And it's a stark contrast to what current agriculture looks like. You know, predominantly they don't really monitor their environmental services at all and they don't really monitor what what the ecosystem around their farm looks like. So it's definitely a stark contrast to what currently is the status quo. And I like that, you know, if you stay small scale enough, it makes it more palatable and you can get a lot more data that way. This one's exciting in that it's sort of a blank slate. And so our chance yeah. is to build something from the bottom up and do it the right way. Learn all those lessons from land-based uh, farming, not make all the mistakes both on land and the mistakes in industrial aquaculture and just build it the right way. Make sure seed is not privatized. Make sure that there's sort of social justice is, is embedded in the DNA of this industry. Make sure you know water is rights are cheap and affordable. Make sure indigenous communities have access to their own water near their villages. And so I think that's what's exciting and that's what's drawing so many people to this field is that like, okay, let's we have all these lessons and let's let's just build something we're we're proud of in this in this new era. Absolutely. So you talked a little bit about uh, you have a toolkit online that makes it accessible for anybody in the world to figure out exactly what their farm could look like. Is this strictly based in cold waters or is this a little bit more applicable to anyone that has a little bit warmer climate? Yeah. So there's something that can be grown everywhere because there are so right. many different species. We're right. starting with cold water species because it's what we really know and know well. Mm -hmm. And the economics of it works where we know that we can grow kelp and, and shellfish high volume in small areas. And so it makes it profitable. Once we build this, we're going to keep on adding new species, bringing in experts in order to do it. So there'll be an expansion so that there'll be information of how to grow in the Gulf, how to do sarragasm and Puerto Rico, things like that. But that's going to be uh, later stages. I know my expertise is definitely Northern. Makes sense. Well, with sargasm, I think uh, we don't have an issue so much with growing it. It would just be kind of best way to harvest it. <laughs> exactly. And down in the Caribbean, sargasm is just filling up the beaches. One of the things we can do is take that and repurpose it. Like sargassum is also amazing fertilizer if you have a fertilizer plant. And right now what a lot of people are doing is digging big holes and putting the holes and covering it up. So we just need to think of the ocean as this place where there are all these nutrients that have value in the rest of our food system. And then, you know, there's hundreds of different kind of shellfish we can grow at the same time. This shouldn't just be about seaweeds and kelp. So if somebody wanted to start a 3D ocean farm, the first step is, I mean, you have to get, you have to get land <laughs> and mm -hmm. lease permitting, which is something that I had learned a few years ago and something you really kind of expounded upon in your book is that there's no, you don't own the ocean floor, you lease it and there's permits that are involved with that. Is getting your permit the first step and then what comes after that? Yeah. And I mean, you know, you can call your sea grant, you can call your Department of Aquaculture really to find out the state of permitting because it's really different in different places. New England, it's really easy to get permits. Alaska, it's now easy to get permits. California is very, very difficult. Difficult could be not just getting them, but also the cost. So in California, it costs 
close to $100,000 to do a, a survey, an environmental survey, hmm. once you lease. And that's completely prohibitive to regular folks like me. Here in Connecticut, it's totally free. And hmm. the leases cost, my leases cost $25 per acre per year. Totally affordable. It's amazing. Anyway, the first thing you want to do is look at look at leases. And then you just want to start, you want to like sort of look at your life and decide what kind of farmer you want to be. Do you want to keep your job and just farm in the winter? Or do you want to farm year round? So that's the first thing. And then the second is you want to take a look like if you've if you've decided, say, okay, I'm going to be a farmer. You want to look at who you know and what kind of resources. Is there a dock that you're able to keep close to the farm that you're so there won't be a long distance from you know from your um, uh, to sh- from shore to the farm? Do you know? Do you have friends that have boats that can move anchors around? Right? Is there um, a good food economy in your area? Or is it far? away? Um, are there universities that can be great allies for hatcheries and things like that? All of these things, and it, none of it is sort of yes or no. It's just what what's the mix in predicting what the challenges and the opportunities are as you begin farming. Once you do that, and then I think, you know, you go to our toolkit and begin the budgeting, the design process. You're going to have to do that for your, uh, when you submit your permits, you're going to need farm designs. But really getting a sense of what cost is and it's really important is to start slow because it doesn't like the ocean might not let you grow your crops where you want to. So what you do is you just put one or two lines in 150 feet long, seed them and just watch it for a year and see how many pounds per foot you're getting. And from that, you're able to build a, uh, a business plan. And then if that's looking good, if you're getting good volume on the farm, then you can scale quickly. Then you can um, put a lot of lines in and really have a fully functioning farm. So it really is a, it's a multi-year slow process. It's not like today I could be like, I'm going to have an ocean farm and by the end of the month have a (laughs) thriving farm. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No. No, it should, you know, it requires planning and and you got to go in wide, eyes wide open. I mean, you know, Mm -hmm. I farm all winter and snowing blizzards i'm breaking ice off the gunnels with a sledgehammer you have to like that and you need some skills so people come out of my farm in the summer and they're like wow i want this life and i'm like (laughs) yeah come out in december and i love it but you know not everybody will yes it's uh something that i find a lot with anybody that wants to work out in the field and aspiring marine biologists they have this uh perception that they can just go and dive and it'll always be really clear and perfect and they'll be on coral reefs and and I'm like well you might get a job on the coral reefs but the chances of it being clear every single day are really slim to none and you're probably going to go out and seas and the visibility might not be great and there's more to it than just all these beautiful idyllic days which exactly Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) you have some principles listed in your book from GreenWave. And I'm curious to see if they've kind of changed a little bit. We touched a little bit already in the podcast about who is farming matters, um, kind of keeping it small, putting the emphasis on indigenous people, protecting the ocean commons, you know, making sure that the ocean's accessible for everybody. And I really love the volume of, of uh, ecosystem services. One of the things that I thought was really interesting, the point that you brought up was that to go beyond organics. Could you explain a little bit why that's not totally feasible in the ocean? Yeah. I mean, organics drives me crazy in the ocean because like, organic means that you can control the environment. You know what is going into your crops, right? Mm-hmm. And you make sure you're not using pesticides, you control fertilizer, antibiotic use, things like that. Well, the ocean, whether you're growing fish or uh, shellfish and seaweeds, you just have no control, right? You have the whole idea is that currents are rushing through and bringing uh, food, you know, stuff that the crops need through. And so an organic standard, I think, is that's just adopting land-based format to the ocean. It makes no sense. It's kind of just lazy. And we need a new uh, labeling system for the ocean. And I like regenerative, right? What mm-hmm. are the crops that are breathing life back into the into the ocean and that's what we want to do and that's what you want to encourage and that what that's what you want to eat and that's what's healthy uh, so that regenerative label so green wave is working on a regenerative label and we're actually hoping to roll that out next spring 
Awesome. And I saw that you had a goal of planting a million acres of regenerative crops in the next 10 years. Where are you on that? Yes. So we are working in seven states now. We're also working in in New Zealand. Actually, we just hired someone to start tracking that metric to see how exactly how much is being planted around the world of seaweeds and shellfish. We really believe that we need to go to scale, but scale doesn't have to be big thousand acre farms, right? It can be hundreds of small scale farms that network and do uh, production that add up to serious volume. But the reason we need to serious volume is, you know, the climate change is real as everybody knows it's here and now, and we need to grow these crops that capture carbon, nitrogen, that lower impact and are alternatives to land-based uh, foods. And so, you know, we can't just be sort of like small scale farmers markets level. We need to think uh, big and broad. Absolutely. You grow different types of sea vegetables, correct? Which is your favorite to grow or eat? I mean, I'm not a foodie, right? I mean, I eat it. <laughs> like I still eat at McDonald's and the gas station and things like that. Like that's my favorite food. Okay. <laughs> you know? How about your wife's? Cause she's the foodie. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. She makes an incredible kelp kimchi that's just in really, really, really tasty. So that's, she bottles those. And, and so the kelp is what something she uses a lot. The other thing about kelp, it's a flavor enhancer because it's packed full of umami. So she'll take like vegetables and things like that and throw some kelp in the boiling water just to bring the flavors out. So that's, she's a heavy uh, user in that way. And then kelp noodles are just an easy dish at the end of the day. You come home from work and you throw them in. It's five minutes and you can throw some spaghetti sauce on it. So that's, that's popular around our house. Awesome. And it's not just that you have kelp at your disposal because you're a kelp farmer, but it's actually becoming more and more readily available um, in grocery stores and stuff in uh, other places as well. Yeah. Yeah. It's really coming online. I mean, there are going to be challenges along the way for sure, but we, we really are seeing momentum. What's going to be, what's really interesting, there's a whole line of uh, uh, plant-based burgers made with kelp that's rolling out this spring. And so that, and they're tasty. It's like kelp and mushrooms and beets, I think. And that's a, that's a whole different level. One of the things no one knows is that in the 1990s, McDonald's had a seaweed burger and it was on the menu for five years. It was called the McLean, and it became the official uh, hamburger of the National Basketball Association. Uh, but they just <laughs> didn't ever mention that there was seaweed in it. You know that was that was uh, kept kept a secret. So taking kelp and weaving it into other dishes and other uh, foods, I think, is going to be going to be key. Absolutely. So if somebody wants to start their own farm, what advice would you give them? Don't quit your job right away. You know, make sure the ocean is going to let you grow in this area and really think about what your network is because you're going to, it's really important to lean on uh, friends, folks at the docks, just, ally, you know, scientists, chefs, just write down on a piece of paper who you know and how that might help you start a farm and go in for the long haul. Just to think of this as um, uh, sort of your life's work. The other thing, if you don't want to start a farm, if you don't want to, you know, you're not a fan of ice and snow, there are opportunities that are on land. Like you could start a hatchery. We have budgets for small scale hatcheries, for big hatcheries. You know, you can literally start them in your basement. It's not not hard to do. And right now there's a shortage of seed supply right in the East Coast where where I am. The other thing, you could start a small business of value-added products, right? Like, you know, try to figure out what to do with these different species. Go to college and learn about permitting and figure in so you can go and really help states and communities think about spatial planning and how to make sure farms are integrated into local use. So I think there are a lot of ways to engage. And honestly, this is also new. We need, you know, all hands on deck of people trying to solve problems. Absolutely. Great advice. One of my very favorite questions to ask is what is your favorite field story or stories to tell? And you have spent a lot of time on the water, so I'm sure you have lots to pull from. This could be like the best day ever and you just had, it, it was just everything went right. Um, or it could be everything went wrong and now it's a great story, but at the time you were kind of in it. 
don't know if this is what you're looking for, but the story <laughs> that comes to mind is actually a story that's told in Newfoundland after the cod stocks crashed. And okay. it's a story about how those of us on the water were not doing it just for money. Mm-hmm. So after the cod stocks crashed, a woman from New York came to take over one of the the uh, processing plants. And she was going to create jobs for the whole community. Everybody was all excited. But you ask, what are we going to, what are we going to make in the factory? And it was seatbelts for pets. Okay? <laughs> and despite everyone in Newfoundland just struggling desperately, they just didn't show up for those jobs because it had no meaning like that pride of helping feed your country. There are certain jobs in the economy like this, you know, whether it's steel workers, coal miners, farmers, and fishermen, these folks that are just proud of building, powering, and feeding the country, jobs that you can write and sing songs about. That's the, mm-hmm. that's the goal. And very often, uh, politicians and public policy just don't understand. They, they think we just want uh, money and then we'll stop stop uh, working on the ocean, stop fishing and stuff like that. It's just not not the case. We're out there just because um, we love every moment. And people want meaningful work. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. So at the end of every episode, I like to give the audience something to go forth and do. And you had a couple of great ones at the beginning of the episode that we kind of chatted about. What would you like the audience to go take from today? Yeah. So first go out and get some, some of that weird tasting seaweed and get creative, right? In the book, we have a bunch of recipes that I think are very approachable and doable for the home chef. And every, just know every time you go out and buy shellfish or seaweeds, you're not only employing someone like helping a farmer survive, but you're helping the planet. You're all of those crops are breathing life back into the ecosystem. So get cooking, get your kids to enjoy this stuff. And, and it's a chance to be creative, like start creating this climate cuisine in your own home. I think the other thing is, um, you know, start a, you, know, you might start a farm, but how not maybe get together with some folks and start a local underwater community garden. Just like on land, we've got community gardens um, all over the place. Let's do them in the ocean and use them as ed- educational platforms, teach people skill, you know, kids skills like boating and about good honorable work and about how to grow food and stuff like that. So I'd love to see, you know, 500 community gardens here at some point. Great asks. Uh, if the audience wants to find you, connect with you, and learn more about Green Wave, what is the best place to do that? Yes. So uh, head head over to our website, which is greenwave.org. And there, there's ways to get involved, volunteer, you can donate, and uh, all that's really going to help. And, you know, come and join the community. It's It's been a fun journey, and it's going to continue to be. Yeah, I, I've spent some time on your website. It really is worth checking out. And uh, your book is fascinating. Eat Like a Fish. If anybody is looking for a great read, it's it's a page turner. I wasn't expecting it. I've read a lot of nonfiction lately and I uh, I picked it up and it was very easy to read. So. <laughs> it's a bit of a salty tale. So uh, <laughs> it is it is by a fisherman. <laughs> it's very good. Well, Brent, thank you so much for your time and thank you for being on the show today. Absolutely. Real honor to be on, on and it was fun. Thank you for listening to today's show. I'd love to hear any insight you've gleaned. Leave a comment in the show notes or send me an email over at marinebio.life. If you enjoyed this episode, leave a review and of course, share with your friends. If you want more resources for ocean news, including conservation topics and careers, plus personal insight from me that I just don't share anywhere else, join me at marinebio.life and sign up for email updates. Keep after your dreams and making waves in your community. One person can make a difference. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll catch you next time on the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast.